I remember seeing a news story a couple of years ago about a man named Tim who was driving his vehicle along Daytona Beach in Florida when he saw something very unusual. He saw a minivan driving into the ocean. And as he got closer to the minivan, he had his window rolled down and he heard something coming from inside the minivan. He heard the sound of children screaming. And so he stopped his vehicle and he ran, he ran toward the minivan and that's when he noticed that there was, there was a woman inside driving the minivan and there were children inside screaming. And so he threw open the side door and that's when the children said, our mom is trying to kill us. And so we jumped into action, but as soon as he did, what the children said apparently got mom's attention because that's when she hit the accelerator and she went driving right into the ocean even more quickly. Tim was able to pull out one of the children and then another one and another person who happened to be walking by, a lifeguard, jumped into action and, and also helped, jumped into the minivan and pulled a, pulled a third one out and they got everyone out just as the minivan went completely underwater and everyone was safe. It turns out that that woman who was driving the minivan was in an abusive relationship. She was in a relationship with somebody who abused her and she wanted to be free from it. She wanted to be free from its pain. But so far, everything that she had tried to get out of that, to be free from it, it, it hadn't worked. And that hurt. So much so, that thought of dying in the ocean with her children made her feel better than going back to that relationship again. This week, we will be looking at God's Word and we will be applying God's Word to individuals who might have an idea of how that woman felt. We will be applying God's Word to those who know what it's like to suffer abuse. And so that might not be you. But that doesn't mean that you don't need to know what God's Word says to those who have been abused. According to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, one in three women and one in four men in the United States experience rape, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner. In other words, by somebody who knows them really, really well. A very general definition of abuse would be uh, a pattern of behaviors used by one partner to maintain control over another partner in a relationship. Or maybe to say it another way, you've been hurt to such a degree that you no longer feel safe. Or to say it another way, somebody who was supposed to love you didn't. And there are different types of abuse. There is physical abuse. There is verbal abuse. There's emotional abuse and financial abuse. There's sexual abuse, social abuse, and even spiritual abuse. And do you know that there are various words in the Bible that describe somebody who's been abused? Words like broken, wounded, crushed, afflicted, oppressed, stricken, and pierced. 
And if those words could describe you, then know that you're not alone. Because they also describe Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 53, those words are used to describe what Jesus went through. Except while you use those words, reluctantly. In other words, something was done to you that you wish would have never been done to you. Jesus assigned those words to him by choice. By choice. He was willingly abused. And why? Because he wanted everyone who's been broken. Everyone whose will, whose confidence, whose security, whose joy has been broken. To know that they have a friend who knows how you feel and who cares enough to do something about it and who will not let it get the best of you. That's why he invites you in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This week we'll talk about how that happens for you who have been abused. There's a movie that came out in 1944 called Gaslight. It's back in the days when the lights that we would use in our homes, they were controlled by, they were controlled by a gas, by the amount of gas that was there to fuel the light. And in the movie, there's a husband and a wife. And the husband tries to manipulate the wife, tries to make her think that she's going crazy. And the way that he does this is that he very subtly, gradually, over a longer period of time, he, he removes just a little bit of gas from the light so that the light gets a little bit dimmer. And then a little bit later on, he removes a little bit more gas from the light so it becomes a little bit more dim. And later on, he removes a little bit more gas so that it becomes a little bit more dim. And when the wife notices that it seems to be a little bit more dim and comes to the husband and says, did you notice that it seems the light is more dim? He says, oh, I didn't notice. Looks the same to me. And this keeps happening, that she notices it's becoming more and more dim and keeps coming to him and saying, don't you notice? And he says, no, it looks, it looks the same to me. And so eventually she comes to the conclusion that there must be something wrong with, with her. That she's the one who's broken. She's the one who's confused. That it's her fault that things seem off. Those who have been abused can come to the same conclusion about themselves. That it's your fault. You might feel shame for the horrible things that you've been put through. For the horrible things that you've been made to do or suffer. Or maybe you've even been told, well, it's your fault this is happening. This wouldn't happen if you weren't such a fill-in-the-blank. This wouldn't happen if you had done a better job of fill-in-the-blank. And for those reasons, those who've been abused might walk around feeling a whole lot of shame. 
they might start to believe that they're the ones who are really broken, that there's something really wrong with them, that they are the problem. But you're not. And do you know why? Because you're the one who's hurting. You're the one who doesn't feel safe. You're the one still feeling the pain. That was done to you. And it's not the first time it's happened in the history of the world. Jesus saw it too. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You probably notice those two words, harassed. Something painful happening over and over again and again, and they had no ability to stop it. Helpless. There was nothing they could do. There was no way for them to create a situation in which something they were going to experience something different. And Jesus saw it. You know, if you were to watch that movie, the one from 1944, you would, you know, you'd be able to see so clearly right from the beginning exactly what was happening. Well, Jesus looks at you and he sees the same thing. He knows you've been harassed. He knows you're helpless. He knows that you've been made to believe that it's your fault. That you're not worthy of anything good from anyone. But Jesus believes you are. Because after he saw the individuals who were harassed and helpless, he did something. The Good Shepherd went to a cross where all of our real faults were forgiven and all of the invented ones. They were among the many, many things that God promises. It's not going to stop your Heavenly Father from looking at you and seeing perfection. No faults. Perfection. Because in Christ Jesus, that's who you always are. No faults. Just a perfect child of your Father in Heaven. A young woman was addicted to cocaine. She got into the habit very early in life and, and stuck with it for long enough that it was doing some considerable damage. But, but thankfully, with the help of her family, with the help of getting into a church and some nice relationships there, she, she broke the habit. And she was going along really, really well until her mother died unexpectedly. And then feeling crushed by what had happened to her, she tried to get back to something that she knew made her feel good, at least temporarily in the past. And so she called up one of the dealers that she used to get cocaine from and she said, she said, I, I need some cocaine. And what, you know, can, can you hook me up with some cocaine? And he said, he said, no, 
I can't do it. And she said, well, well, why not? And he just said, he said, I'm, I'm, I can't do it. I'm not going to give you cocaine. And she said, do you not have any? And he said, no, I, I have, I have some. I'm just, I'm not going to give it to you. And she really pushed and said, this is, you know, you know how this is supposed to work. I call you, you have the supply. I give you the money and you give, and you give me the drugs. That's how this works. And he said, I'm not going to do it. And she kept pushing and kept pushing until finally he said, I'm not going to do it because your dad came. After your mom died, it seems that your dad thought that you might do this again. And so he went around town to every drug dealer he could find and he looked them in the face and he said, if you sell my daughter cocaine, I am going to kill you. And the drug dealer said to the young woman over the phone, and I believe him. I'm not going to sell you that cocaine. And he didn't. And she never ended up getting any because, in large part, it felt really good to have someone in her life that she could trust to look out for her like that. But if you've been abused, you might begin to wonder if you will ever find someone like that. Because you probably, at one point, trusted someone. You thought that they were going to protect you. You thought that they were going to be good to you. You thought that they were going to be there for you. You thought that they were going to look out for your life. But they didn't. They didn't. You gave them your trust and they left you broken. And maybe that's happened so often or over such a long period of time that now you wonder if there, you'll ever find anyone out there that you can ever trust again. Anyone that you know for certain is going to be there for you no matter what it will cost them. Well, there's one. There's at least one person that the Bible describes feeling the same way about you as that father felt about his daughter. It's in Isaiah 35, where Isaiah is told, Say to those with fearful hearts, Don't be afraid. Your God will come. He will come with a vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. A great, a great picture of, of what that dad was doing for the daughter. And what it's saying is that God cares about what's been done to you. And it makes him sick. And it makes him angry. He wants it to stop. And it compels him to take action. And so he comes. He comes into this broken world. And he becomes broken. So that you can walk through the rest of your life knowing that one day you will be completely healed of everything. And he already did it. He already came. So that you could know there's at least one person that you can always trust to be there for you when you need him. And I want to encourage you to not give up so quickly the hope of ever finding another individual on this planet that you might trust one day. 
You're right to be cautious after what's been done to you. You're right to be skeptical. But there are people out there who will care for you. And I wish I could tell you, well, it's the people who know God's word and it's the people who can quote the Bible and it's the people who go to church, but sometimes those are the ones who actually do the abuse. Because for some of you, the Bible has actually been used to make the pain worse. If somebody has ever said to you, you know, you're supposed to submit to me. You know, you're supposed to forgive. The Bible says so. That's what you're supposed to be doing. And of course, the Bible does say those things. But often the people who are saying them, they're using them in the same way that Satan used the Bible when he was trying to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. He wasn't trying to help Jesus. He was just trying to get what he wanted. And so there's a difference. And as you go forward in life, trusting God, and also looking for other individuals to trust, pay attention to a couple of things. Pay attention not only to how they say those verses, to how they speak God's word to you, to the tone of their voice. They can look at you in the eyes and say, don't be afraid. It almost sounds like God himself is speaking it to you but also pay attention to how they follow up with it. And you can be cautious here too. And you can be patient. And you can hold back from giving them your trust until you come to the conclusion that they deserve it. You'll know when that's the case. It's when you finally feel safe when somebody speaks God's word to you. And God trusts you to do that too. He believes in you. He understands you. He will guide you. I pray that you find so many relationships that point you to the comfort of God's word. And until then, I'm grateful that our God is always looking out for you. A number of years ago, I read a story about a man in Taiwan who was planning a visit with some of his friends to one of the area's best restaurants. Wanting to maximize the experience and get as much out of it as he possibly could, he went the, most, of the, most of the day without eating much because he wanted to save a lot of room for all the yumminess and, and, and get it all in and enjoy as much of it as he could. And so as they walked to the restaurant, they were very excited about what was coming, only to discover when they got to the restaurant and it probably would have been good if they had checked the hours of the restaurant because when they got there, the restaurant was closed. And so they stood outside the restaurant, not being able to get in, not being able to get any food and feeling really, really hungry because of course he hadn't eaten much that day. And so they walked across the street feeling really disappointed, feeling really hungry. There was a gas station and they went in and they grabbed a few snacks and in the process, he bought a lottery ticket and ended up winning $3 million. And so what turned out to be kind of a big disappointment very quickly turned into something worth celebrating. For those of you who've been abused, the opposite often happens. You thought you had something worth celebrating. A wonderful marriage. A great friend. 
an awesome first date. Wonderful companionship. Somebody who was willing to sit down and listen to you. Listen to whatever you said. But then it very quickly turned into something different. And when it does, you're often left wondering, well, how did this happen? How did this happen? The Bible gives us some very basic insight into how that happens. If you go all the way back to the beginning, back to the Garden of Eden with with Adam and Eve and the serpent, and when Adam and Eve were spiritually abused by the serpent and and they were suffering the consequences and God came in and he made them a promise. And he promised them that he was going to save them from it. That what happened in that garden wasn't going to get the best of them in the end. But it's important to note that when he made the promise, Satan didn't immediately disappear. Sin didn't immediately get erased from the world. They were still there just like they are still here. And maybe you have felt the results of that as Satan or sin has gotten a hold of somebody else's heart and made you the victim. But it's also important to note something else. That even though sin and Satan are a constant presence in this world, It didn't take away God's promise. The promise is still here too. And it's a promise we see fulfilled in many different ways over the course of time, but one in particular that I want to draw your attention to. It's it's later on in the book of Genesis, in the life of somebody who knew what it was like to be abused over the long haul. Joseph, sold by his brothers, it's nothing more treated as nothing more than a piece of property. He was abused for many, many years until finally he was, he was pulled out of prison and, and he was elevated to a very high and powerful position. And when he was in that powerful position and things were going much better for him than they had been almost two decades earlier, he had two children. And in Genesis chapter 41, he names his two children. And he tells us why he names his children what he did. In Genesis 41, it says, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble. And then the second son, he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. You know, and with Manasseh, it's not that the troubles he had been through had been erased from his memory. He was obviously remembering them as he was naming, as he was naming his son. But it was as if he had forgotten what it was like to be ruled by them. And God did that for him. And then with Ephraim, he made him fruitful in the land of his suffering. He remembered his suffering. But God did something amazing through it. He created good things that never would have happened without it. 
and it wouldn't be the last time God would ever do such a thing. He also did it on a day when it looked like God had completely forgotten about every good promise he had ever made. On the day that the Son of God was hanging on a cross and suffering, after having been abused over and over again and again. Such abuse that it killed him. Killed the man who on the third day was alive again. He was alive again. And how did that happen? That somebody who had been hurt, somebody who had been through so much pain, was full of life and glowing with perfection? Well, God kept a promise. He promised to love you. And he did. Because by that death and by that resurrection, he guaranteed a day in your future when you're never going to hurt ever again. And maybe or maybe not you'll remember what was done to you. But it won't rule over you. And maybe or maybe not you'll remember the specific ways that you suffered. But in place of the suffering in your eyes, you'll see such abundant fruit that God produced that it will no longer control you. All because God made a promise. A promise to love you. And he knows how to keep it. If you've been abused, you might sometimes wonder, well, how is this going to end? To help answer that question, I'm going to tell you a story. It's not about somebody who was abused, but it does involve some, some pretty deep pain. It's a story of a, a writer for ESPN. His name is Royce Young. And a number of years ago, he and his wife Carrie found out that they were expecting a baby, which they were very excited about. But when they went in for the first ultrasound, the doctor gave them some very bad news. He said, your child doesn't have a brain. The child in the womb literally had, had no brain. So that child was never going to live. And as soon as the doctor told them, they, they, they broke out into the, the deepest sobbing that, that you possibly could. But after a few moments, Carrie looked at the doctor and said, Doc, if I, if I carry the baby to full term, can the organs be donated? And the doctor put his hand on her shoulder and said, Oh, honey, that's so sweet of you to say. As if, you know, as if to say, like, that's, you know, that's nice, but that's absolutely crazy. There's no way that, <laughs> there's no way that, Anybody would ever expect you to do something like that. And think of the reasons why. It's because, because every day for the nine months of pregnancy, as, as this body is growing inside of her, it would be a, a daily and moment-by-moment -moment reminder of all the things that she would never get to enjoy with this child. But the reason she asked the question was because a couple of days earlier, Royce, her husband, who works for ESPN, was working the NBA All-Star Game. And there were some special guests at the NBA All-Star Game, and uh, one of the guests was a, a young child who was waiting for a liver transplant. 
and a young child who was waiting for a liver transplant was wearing a t-shirt that said, it takes a life to save a life. And that really struck him, that that's true for most transplants, that one life needs to end in order for another life to keep going. And that's why Royce and Carrie decided to carry the baby to full term because they wanted to give at least one more person hope that they could keep going. Which is exactly what Jesus fully intends to do for you. He wants to give you hope. He knows how hard life for the abused so easily is. He knows about all the stretches of pain and how difficult that can be when you go through them over and over again and again where you have a difficult time believing that this is going to end well for anyone. It's why he left the comfort of heaven. Because he also believes that it takes a life to save a life. He so strongly believes it that he ended up on a cross where his life ended. Just so you could walk through every day of your life, every moment, knowing that one day your heart and your body will not be broken. And while we can wonder why God sometimes seems to be taking so long <laughs> making that happen. We know exactly why God allowed Jesus to suffer like he did when he came. It's because he was thinking of you. It's because he was loving you. It's because he knew that hope is a very precious gift he wanted to give to somebody just like you. And it's why he had the prophet Isaiah say this in Isaiah chapter 9. One day there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. In your deepest darkness, just know, you always have a light and it will never fail to stop shining for you as often as you need to see him. If you or someone you know is suffering from abuse, please go to timeofgrace.org backslash abuse to find more resources and information for getting help.